This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug? Ignored a leaky faucet? Pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects. But there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone, and in just a few steps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next, because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects, and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast, with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Sponsored by Raytheon. There are 125 stars now carved on the memorial wall at CIA. A star is carved each time an officer dies. By my count, more than a third of those stars have been carved since 9-11, which is a pretty graphic illustration of the danger that has come to CIA officers in this period of strife after those attacks. Gina has the uh, challenge and the opportunity of being CIA director at an inflection point in the evolution of human affairs, foreign affairs, and international relations when the world is shifting to some new construct for which we don't yet have a name. John McLaughlin is one of our nation's leading experts on intelligence and national security. John spent nearly 30 years as a CIA analyst, rising to lead the analytic side of the agency, to be the deputy director under George Tennant, and finally the acting director after Tennant left the agency in 2004. Today, John teaches at the School of Advanced International Studies at the Johns Hopkins University, and he frequently writes and speaks about foreign policy and national security issues. Most important, John is the chairman of the board of the CIA Officers Memorial Foundation, and it is in this role that I recently had an opportunity to sit down with John and discuss. We'll begin the conversation right after a word from Raytheon, our exclusive sponsor. This is Intelligence Matters, and I'm Michael Morrell. Podcast presented by Raytheon. From connected devices to infrastructure to critical mission systems, Raytheon crosses networks, markets, and continents, defending every side of cyber to make the world a safer place. John, welcome to the show. It is great to have you with us. Great to be with you, Michael. So, John, I think most people who read what you write and listen to your commentary on television don't know that you are, in addition to a very insightful analyst, also a professional magician. In fact, you have a new book that just came out, (laughs) Creating Business Magic, How the Power of Magic Can Inspire, Innovate, and Revolutionize Your Business. So that's really interesting. Yes. Thank you, Michael, for mentioning that. Uh, It's just out now. It's on Amazon can be purchased there. This is a book uh, written by myself, a 
full-time professional magician and a political consultant who has worked with a number of companies and political candidates. And all three of us are magicians, one professionally. And what we've done here is to take the principles that a professional magician uses to create miracles and basically say some of these principles translate very well to the business world to enhance creativity, imagination, and business success. If you think about it, what a magician does is say, I want to do something impossible. And how would I do that? And then they proceed to do it or seem to do it. Mm -hmm. But the process of creating that illusion involves overcoming the impossible. And that's often what you have to do in business or in government. You and I have been in situations where (laughs) we asked ourselves, is this conceivable? Could we do this? And so a magician, sort of the thought process that a magician goes through, that's what the book is intended so, to so John, provide. So, you John, once, you once did a, a, a trick for the Argentine president um, <laughs> yes. in a meeting with, uh, with George Tenet, then director of CIA. Can you tell us what that trick was? Yeah, yeah, it was a funny thing. Someone in the room said, that guy over there is a magician. It was Carlos Menem, the president, then the president of Argentina. And he said, oh, I'm a magic fan. Would you show me, uh, show me what you can do? So I asked him if he had a dollar bill. And there's a little trick we do where you fold that bill up, and when you unfold it, it's a $100 bill. Uh, It goes from a Washington to a Benjamin in just a fraction of a second. So he liked it and laughed and had a good time, and then about a week later, we had a cable come up from um, Argentina offering the finance ministry. (laughs) Uh, Of course, it was a joke, but it was also his reflection on the day. So what I found in our business, Michael, was that magic was sometimes an icebreaker. Uh, when you were dealing with someone that who, for whatever reason, was either uncomfortable or didn't know how to deal with you or had some objection. I did this with the Russians quite often. In in my day, we had not infrequent conversations with the Russians about common interests, and uh, it was always a good breaker with them. In fact, I showed up in Moscow once, and the Russian intelligence officer who met me at the airport came with a deck of cards and wanted to show me a card trick. That's great. John, this past Monday was Memorial Day, and I thought this would be a great time to talk about the CIA Officers Memorial Fund yes. Foundation, uh, a terrific organization that I think more people need to know about. And if it's okay with you, I'd like to start by talking about the origins of the foundation. And because I think like any good analyst does, that context is everything. The origins of the foundation are really about life after 9-11, I'd like to start by asking you where you were on 9-11 and what you remember uh, from that day. Well, of course, uh, everyone um, old enough to remember remembers it vividly. And it was that event that spurred the creation of this memorial foundation to assist CIA officers uh, who lose their lives and their families. Uh, On that day... uh, You were the deputy... I was deputy the deputy director of Central Intelligence. I was the deputy director. I was on the seventh floor of the CIA. As I think back over that day, which I remember in vivid detail, as I'm sure you do, because you are also doing something extraordinarily important that day with the president. I, two reactions that stand out in my mind, one at the beginning of the day and one at the end of the day. Uh, at the beginning of the day, when the second plane hit the Trade Tower and when we heard about the Pentagon being hit, my thought was, that's it. That's it. 
that and that was the thought because as you know we were throughout that summer dealing with uh, an avalanche of reporting about a potential terrorist attack but we were frustrated in not knowing when exactly this would happen what the target would be what the method would be and in that moment all of that became clear you know we had been issuing warnings but warnings short of time target method and we were strategic frustrated. Warning. Strategic warning. We were successful with that, but we were not successful with tactical warning. This was very frustrating to us. So first reaction was, oh, that's it. That's it. Second reaction at the end of the day, at about 10.30 at night, as we were wrapping up everything we had done that day, I remember turning to my computer and typing a single sentence. And all it said was, uh, things will never be the same, or nothing will never ever be the same. I printed that out, and it's boxed up somewhere in the archives uh, with all those papers we send away when we're finished with our jobs. During the day, uh, we had a number of what you will recall very well as secure video conferences with the president. At least one I remember quite vividly in which he said uh, something to the effect that form a worldwide coalition against terrorism, we will find them and destroy them. Those words are very vividly engraved in my mind. And essentially that day, uh, I won't go through all the details, but we created a little emergency operations center in a building adjacent to ours because we assumed our building was an attack target. And about two hours, three hours after the attacks, an analyst ran into that building carrying a copy of the manifest from one of the planes, and on that manifest we recognized the names of two people we knew to be al-Qaeda. So that further confirmed that this was an al-Qaeda attack. So, um, you know, I'll stop there, but the whole day is very vividly engraved in my mind. So, John, just five days later, so the following Saturday, Director Tennant and you presented a plan at Camp David to the president to go after al-Qaeda and the Taliban in Afghanistan. How was it that the agency had a plan ready so quickly, and how is it that the president chose the CIA rather than the U.S. military to lead that effort? Well, you know, as as, uh, accomplished as our military is today at counterterrorism and special operations, at that moment in time, uh, it was not something our military was as focused on as the CIA was. We had been worrying about an attack we had kept touch with the Northern Alliance, the group in northern Afghanistan that was in a civil war with the Taliban. And at the end of the Clinton administration, in the last months of 1999-2000, Sandy Berger, the national security advisor, had told us, put together what he called a blue sky plan to attack al-Qaeda, by which he meant a plan unconstrained by resources. Essentially, he was saying... If we gave you everything you wanted, what would you have to do to take this organization down? And we had put that down on paper. The Clinton administration, frankly, just ran out of time uh, with the election having been completed. We held on to that plan, and we resuscitated it a number of times during the first year of the Bush administration, talking to the administration about the fact that we had such a plan. Uh, They were not eager to go ahead with it immediately because they wanted to do their own assessment of al-Qaeda. 
Bottom line, though, is that when the attack occurred, everyone knew that CIA had been thinking about this. In fact, in the last months before the Bush team came in, I remember quite vividly sitting in my basement with a secure fax machine, sending a version of that plan back and forth between myself and Kofer Black, who was then the head of the uh, Counterterrorism Center. In any event, when uh, we went to Camp David on Saturday after 9-11, we basically polished up that plan, added things to it to take account of what had just happened, and we were able to put a plan on the table for attacking al-Qaeda in literally dozens of countries around the world. Essentially, I'm saying we were the most prepared at that moment, as accomplished as our military has become. At that moment, we were the most prepared to go and do this. And so on the following Monday, in the uh, cabinet room at the White House, the president gave about 12 orders after he'd reflected on the weekend. And one of those orders was CIA's first in. Uh, go in there, prepare the way for special forces. And as you know, we had a couple teams on the ground within about uh, 15 days of 9-11. So that executing that plan in Afghanistan, John, meant putting CIA officers at extraordinary risk. Yes. Um, probably the most risk we've put officers at since the OSS fought the Nazis behind enemy lines in World War II. Yes. One of those officers was Mike Spann. Can you tell us about him? Can you tell us what happened to him on November 25th, 2001? It was a Sunday, I believe. Yeah, Mike Spann is now a very important individual in the in CIA history, in fact, in American history. Not a household name to Americans, but very important in our history. Mike was a former Marine officer, uh, grew up in Alabama, went to Auburn University, joined the Marines after Auburn, became an artillery officer, rose to the rank of captain, retired from the Marine Corps, and joined the CIA in 1999 in what we call the Special Activities Division that you know well. These are essentially our paramilitary officers. And Mike was therefore on these teams that went into Afghanistan immediately after 9-11. By November, things were going hot and heavy in Afghanistan in the battle with the Taliban. And Mike was in northern Afghanistan at a place called Mazar-e-Sharif, and he was at a compound where Taliban prisoners were housed, questioning some of the prisoners in preparation for operations further south. There was a prison revolt. Uh, these prisoners seized the weapons of their Afghan guards, and a gunfight ensued in which Mike uh, defended himself and his compatriots with the weapons he had. We're not clear on all the details, but I believe he had an AK-47 and a pistol. And he ran out of ammunition at some point and was overwhelmed by these Taliban prisoners who had their own weapons and was killed on November 25. So he was the first American to die in Afghanistan uh, during the post-9-11 conflict there. And it was Mike's death, I think, uh, along with a number of other things that spurred a number of retired officers to privately organize the CIA Officers Memorial Foundation. A leading figure in this was uh, one of our legendary former directors, Richard Helms, who had been um, a director in the uh, 60s and 70s. And 
the prescience of these officers was such that that has turned out to be a very wise thing to do. There are 125 stars now carved on the memorial wall at CIA, where a, a star is carved each time an officer dies in the line of duty. And by my count, more than a third of those stars have been carved since 9-11, which is a pretty graphic illustration of the danger that has come to CIA officers in this period of strife after those attacks. Yeah, CIA officers are dying in the line of duty at twice the rate post-9-11 that they did pre-9-11. Yes. They are, you know, we always think of ourselves throughout your career and mine. We always thought of ourselves, and I believe it was maybe George H.W. Bush who first used this phrase, at least that I remember, as the first line of defense. But that acquired a kind of reality after 9-11 that it had not had in the same measure prior to that. And now, really, it's more the tip of the spear than first line of defense. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and then we'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. In the next-gen controls of tomorrow's UAVs. In the high-tech guidance systems of tomorrow's weapons. In the supercomputers mounting tomorrow's cyber defense. Raytheon is there. Driving innovation that helps the U.S. Army protect people, information, and infrastructure. Together, we're making the world a safer place. John, what's the fundamental mission of the Foundation? There are many missions, but the core mission is to provide for the education of children who lose a parent in CIA service. What this means to our officers, and I've talked to some of them who go into harm's way, is that because the foundation is there, they don't really have to worry if, God forbid, something happens to them. They don't have to worry about the education of their children. Uh, We cover that. And uh, we're now adding, in recent years, to the range of things we do. We also offer counseling. Uh, We have begun offering graduate fellowships to some of these students, and at least three of them have now obtained master's degrees. We also provide, in some cases, daycare for spouses who want to go back to school in order to increase their competitiveness in the marketplace after they've lost a spouse. And you know, we're looking now at ways to help also injured officers who come back, perhaps not killed, but perhaps having lost a limb or having need for a long period of recovery and physical therapy. But fundamentally, the core mission, the core mission is to ensure the education of children who lose a parent in service. So that goal that you all set out for officers to be comfortable doing dangerous missions, knowing that their family would be taken care of, that turned out to be real. And in the conversations that I would have as deputy director in war zones, it would come up, and they were conscious of it. They knew the existence of the foundation, and it was important to them. I might say we, we've taken care of 123 children over the course of the foundation's existence. Uh, that number goes up all the time. We currently have 49 students in school, and we also look at the pipeline. And when we look back at the pipeline of young people who will be eligible for this support, 
We're now at a count of 149, and their ages range between one-year-old and seven-year-old. And, of course, one tragic event can increase that pipeline dramatically overnight, as happened in uh, late 2009 with the uh, attack on the coast base in Afghanistan where we lost seven officers. Mm-hmm. John, there's one student in particular I'd like you to talk about. Her, her first name is Allison. What's her story? Well, Allison is uh, the daughter of Mike Spann. And and I could talk about many of our students, but she is uh, to us kind of iconic in a way because in her you see uh, you see the past and the future. She was just a little girl when her father was killed as the first American killed in Afghanistan. And uh, I remember the, uh, the video and the photographs of her holding the hand of uh, Stephanie Tennant, Miss, uh, George Tennant's wife, at Dover Air Force Base as her father's remains came home. Well, uh, Allison grew up, and uh, we followed her development, and she went to college at Pepperdine University in California, completed her four years there, has graduated, and uh, wanted to major in communications and uh, English, I believe, and is now a broadcaster. Mm -hmm for a major network. So this is what we see with these young people. We see them move from grief to accomplishment. Uh, Another case would be a young man named Stephen who was in a similar situation and is now, having gone all the way through college with our help, is now an architect in New York City. And he says, and people like him say, I think many, I think one of the things that's hard to really quantify here is that this experience reconnects these young people emotionally with the agency and the cause uh, to which their parent gave their, uh, the ultimate sacrifice. John, there's an annual dinner that the foundation yeah. does every April, every spring, which is really a remarkable event. My wife calls it the CIA prom, but it really is a special evening, and you've been a huge part of that. Just give our listeners a sense of what that's like. Mm. Well, I, I always call it, uh, CIA prom is a good way to put it. It's in, in a way, it's a bit of a reunion for former CIA officers and current CIA officers. About 800 people come, and the uh, the point, the central event that occurs is that we present an award in the name of Richard Helms, call it the Richard M. Helms Award, for service to the CIA and the nation. And we usually present it to someone, always present it to someone, who has deserved that recognition, service to the CIA and the nation. And among those who've received that award are people like Madeleine Albright, Henry Kissinger. Both President Bushes. Both President Bushes, George Tenet himself, Bob Gates, Leon Panetta. William Webster this year? William Webster this year and and Bill McRaven, Admiral Bill McRaven, who was the uh, operations chief during the bin Laden takedown. We haven't picked someone for the next dinner, but that's the centerpiece of the dinner. And, of course, we raise money at that dinner for the education of students, which, by the way, that educational bill, in the time that I've been chairman, which is now about six years, the bill for educating our students has risen from about 
$400,000 to over a million dollars mm. a year. So it is a, a daunting task to raise these funds, and but we're doing okay. People understand that this is one of those things that is an unassailably good thing. And I will just mention, too, that our foundation is run by a, a full-time person who is uh, essentially operates as the full-time president of the foundation with a very small part-time staff. Most of the money goes to the beneficiaries of our mission, and the organization, the CIA Officers Memorial Foundation, has a four-star rating with the Charity Navigator and other rating services that look carefully at how charities are run. So, John, if our listeners would like to donate, how would they do that? It's very easy. Uh, There's two ways. You can go online to www.caamemorialfoundation.org. That's all one word, caamemorialfoundation.org, slash donate, or just go on on the site, www.caamemorialfoundation.org, and there will be a big donate sign that flashes right up, and you can donate online securely uh, with a credit card. If you want to donate by check, uh, you can send a check to CIA Officers Memorial Foundation, Post Office Box 405, Herndon, Virginia. That's H-E-R-N-D-O-N, Herndon, Virginia, at 20172. John, Gina Haspel has now been confirmed and sworn in as CIA director. She's on the job. How do you think about the challenges ahead for her in that position? Well, she's got, uh, I think, two sets of challenges. And one of them, of course, is foreign intelligence of all sorts. And there, I think, the need for intelligence has uh, rarely been greater. I say rarely because never is a strong word, but rarely been greater. We are... uh, in need of intelligence for just about every problem on the long list of problems that foreign policy specialists talk about today, whether it's the upcoming negotiations with North Korea or whatever we're going to do with Iran, the problems we're having with Russia, understanding the future of China and so forth. She has to do this in the midst of a number of revolutions in the world, uh, not least of which is the technological revolution. In fact, as I think about it, I'm actually scratching my head literally and figuratively about an article that a colleague and I want to write now about this new era. And I'm thinking the two things that are characteristic of it uh, that will be part of her challenge are the increase in asymmetric power by many entities, whether it's terrorists or the gray warfare we see being practiced by Russia and China and and the other factor is digitization, basically the movement of the world toward a digital world, which creates a whole new domain of understanding and conflict. So I think Gina has the challenge and the opportunity of being CIA director at a an inflection point in the evolution of uh, human affairs, foreign affairs, and international relations when the world is shifting to some new construct for which we don't yet have a name, uh, like Cold War or containment. We don't have that for this world. 
And the other challenge she has is operating in a highly political, partisan environment here in Washington where, you know, the CIA is the fact witness, the organization that has to walk into the Situation Room or into the Congress and say, regardless of what you may think or what your political view may be or your bias may be, here is the fact as best humanly we can discern it. And that often, as you know very well, involves delivering news that isn't too pleasant to the uh, the hearer, the receiver. Or the sides, uh, both sides cherry-picking what they want to Or both use. sides looking at the intelligence and seeing in it what they wish to see. At the end of the day, then, the director's job is to say, here's what we see. You can see what you want, but you cannot claim to represent the intelligence community or the CIA. Only the director and the DNI can do that. And so I think that's, she's got an important job, and yet I'd say to her what I say to my graduate students, which is I envy anyone grappling with this world because it's very much the challenges as invigorating as that must have been to those people after World War II who stared at a world in ruins and had to make it again. In a way, that's the way the world is today. It's a world that is in a in such a revolutionary and fluid state that it has to be made again. And intelligence is inevitably one of the guidelines for policy as they seek to do that. John, just one more question, and and maybe we'll we'll end here where we started with, with magic. You gave a talk at a local magnet high school in Northern Virginia um, called Thomas Jefferson. I remember you came back and, told us all, um, and you did a magic trick there. What did you do, and how did the students there respond to it? Well, I did a magic trick because I was talking to high school students, and I wanted to put a, not exactly a human face on the CIA, but I wanted to put a doubly intriguing face on the CIA. So I did a trick that is one of my signatures. It involves taking a newspaper and ripping it up into shreds and then shaking those pieces a little bit, and it comes out whole. Well, the students went crazy. It was a little bit like a TV show in which you see everyone jumping to their feet and yelling out loud. And these are elite science and technology and math kids. These are the smartest kids that you're ever going to find. Every one of them is guaranteed admission to MIT or uh, Carnegie Mellon or Harvard or somewhere. They're all engineers. They're all smart kids. Typically, uh, engineers aren't that hard to fool because they're so logical. And magic is essentially defying the laws of physics. Uh, But I must tell you, I heard one of these kids as I was leaving said to another kid, he said, let's go to the tape. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, the principal told me later, they watched that tape over and over again, and they they played it in slow motion trying to figure it out. And, of course, I had thought of this in advance, so I had had, uh, taken precautions against that. Actually, the trick looks better in slow motion. That's great. So it drove them crazy. John, thank you for joining us. It's been great to have you. Always a pleasure to see you, Michael. Thanks, John. That was John McLaughlin, and this was Intelligence Matters. Please join us next time. And please leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts. We read every one of them. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, sponsored by Raytheon. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Claire Himes. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell.
Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. 